This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I have no idea when Dev starts on this. Oh, me neither. Is it now? It can't be now. There's no way. Wait, it's coming up. Okay, hold on. Okay. Places. Places. The history of film. That better who even when the lights go dim. From James Cagney to Nosferatu and stunts that shock you. And dirty, dirty tricks to your made. From wings to Top Gun, movie stars and no ones. Romantic crazy fans that leave no real a ton. Hollywood is still from history in Hollywood. They chase the Oscar, but it's all a sham, just like Shaq and Kazam. All your dreams can come true. History, the history of film. All of it made for you. Good God, that was terrible. Last we left our hero, James Cagney was breaking into the industry, finally. He and Joan Blondell were doing a play called Penny Arcade on Broadway when they're scouted by none other than the king of blackface himself, Al Jolson. Al buys the rights to the play and sells it to Warner Brothers with James Cagney and Joan attached. Warner Brothers mm, makes it into a movie called Sinner's Holiday. It's a big hit and puts the cag on the map, see? After a few small contracts, Warner Brothers signs Jimmy to a seven-year, $400-a-week contract with only six months at a time guaranteed. He would do a bunch of films right off the bat, six movies in 1931 alone, mostly playing woman-slapping gangsters in movies like Public Enemy, but showing his range in a picture called Blonde Crazy with Joan Blondell. That was Radio Man. Thanks, Radio Man. <laughs> Thanks, Radio Man. <laughs> Radio Man's like, well, whatever, there's something that needs to be recapped. I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> and then he disappears into the... I'll be there. He, like, opens her closet like Babe Ruth <laughs> in uh, the Sandlot. He's just crawling Another. out of the kitchen cupboards. <laughs> oh, what's, what podcast is this, by the way? This is Film History. The, the History, history of, of Film. film. <laughs> nice. Film History. The History of Film. This is James Cagney. Part three, because in part one, I lied to you guys and said this is going to be a two-parter, <laughs> but then as soon as we began doing part two, uh, I changed my mind. This was definitely going to be a part three. Uh, I do think that I wrapped it up really nicely here in part three, put a little bow on it. I think cool. this is going to go great. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think this will go well. So I'm drinking this- coffee. This entire podcast will be uh, James Cagney, History of Cagney. <laughs> no, no. Look, this is going to be part three of James Cagney, and we're going to wrap it on James Cagney, and then we will move on. The next episode, everyone, we've decided is going to be Waterworld. So oh, Deb, excited. did we tell you that? <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm, I'm pretty ecstatic how we're just, you know, time warping through the dimensions we're like quantum leap but podcast version <laughs> dude look drake was like we'll start doing the research on Waterworld now and i was like oh drake i've already done it my friend 
I did it independently without <laughs> needing to remember it for a podcast. Do you mean the 5,000 word essay I wrote in college where it was my <laughs> thesis about how Waterworld changed the world? <laughs> it did. Waterworld changed everything. Also in this episode, you mentioned that we're going to kind of get into like some the studio wars. So yeah, this episode is going to be big about the studios in the 1930s. Uh, well... 1920s through 1940s really mm -hmm. but it is the studio wars as we call them basically james cagney had it out with warner brothers every step of the way <laughs> <laughs> they did not like each other jack warner uh made a lot of money off of james cagney but would have preferred to have never worked with james cagney really basically. yeah he called him the 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 great againster the great, the great against her. You can't just make up things like that. <laughs> that sounds like an SNL skit. Mm -hmm. The great against her. That sounds like no, horrible <laughs> World War One or Two propaganda. <laughs> Seriously, he was kind of doing a lot of propaganda yeah. against uh, James Cagney, but yeah, basically, just you know, well, look, I but. I mean, I guess it is, I guess you could say it was sort of biased because I'm studying James Cagney and his side of the story is that they were wrong, but also they were wrong. You yeah, know? I mean, I mean they, they, it, they were really bad. From what I understand, I'll, I'll understand more as we go, it, it almost feels like the predatory record contracts of today. Yeah. Like, you know, like for, for musicians. That it was, it absolutely was. And I'll tell you, so I'll start, it's 1932. James Cagney, he's walked out on the studio once already. Right. Did yeah. we end with him like saying like we ended I think we ended part one with him uh walking out. Now or did no, he, no, no, no. We no. ended part two. I think we ended part two of him walking yeah. out, right? Question Did he walk out or did he tap dance out? and then he just zips off like in a cartoon because if it were me i would have just tap danced out sideways dude that would be so my great hat. oh my god call all the cameras i'm about to tap dance out of this bitch and while punching dance. like every exec on the way yeah <laughs> also um, did you get any details about what happened to his wife? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'll get into that. Okay. I'll get cool. into All that. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> Mystery actually, no, I, I can go ahead and tell you because maybe before we get into this, when they were young and on vaudeville, they went broke at one point mm -hmm. and moved in with his mom in New York. Right. Uh, so they were living there for a bit and basically his mom and his brothers, Harry and William and God, he had so many siblings but his his family did not like francis at all they didn't oh. like her yeah or willie or billy there she has two nicknames but a lot of people called her billy yeah they didn't like her i don't know i couldn't quite find any like details on why they didn't like her there's a lot of crazy early 1900s family stuff going on with these people like james cagney and francis at one point adopted two children and people said that <laughs> people said these kids like lived in the barn and like didn't really like come around like they kind of kept these kids like you know locked away basically what the fuck? and when james cagney died he wrote them out of his will he wrote Whoa. these two kids well and they they both died 
pretty young oh, too. Okay. They both died like in their forties and fifties. Okay, probably because yeah. they didn't have any money. One of them died of drugs. Oh, and I think the other one, yeah, died of like. It's, being al- poor, it's almost like if you didn't write about their will, they might still be around. <laughs> you um, died of being poor back in those days. <laughs> you died of being poor now. That's very true. Damn, that's um, deep. that hasn't changed. <laughs> something's never changed um wait did he have any natural born kids um no no what cagney had no kids no no kids wow and you still wrote the other ones out of his will yep who did he leave his money to i i i think somebody who he had had become friends with like a neighbor or something it was (laughs) it was one of those things where like <laughs> Literally, it That's was so fucked yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, man. It's it it does still happen to these days. Um, wait, wait. So, question. Um, well, I, I have a theory as why they didn't like Billy. Um, probably because like in those times, like she had like her own career and That's like true. she was she was traveling around a lot. And then his mom was probably like, "Why isn't your why, why isn't your wife?" <laughs> I was trying to do an Italian accent, like old, she like needs Italian. To be at home, I'm making you a sandwich. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was probably more like they didn't like the independent she needs nature. To make of, your, uh, the spaghetti. There we go. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna be the accent guy on this show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was it started coming off as like Jewish. I was like, that's not what I was trying to do at all. Um, <laughs> but uh, wait, so but that doesn't explain why there's no information of her in the record books. Yeah, no, there's not a lot of information on her. You know, she, for she one, was never in any movie. She never acted in movies or anything. No, she didn't. I looked it up, and wow. she didn't. The only thing that she's in, she's mentioned in like uh, like a James Cagney documentary, basically. Wow. Um, but I don't know, and then there is that possibility, like we said, I mean, James Cagney literally did a movie based on coming to L.A. Mm-hmm. to sign a contract and become an actor in films, and they literally told him, "You, no one can know you're married. Right, you have yeah. To, he bought an apartment, in the movie, he bought yeah. an apartment for his wife to be his, like, secretary, you know, right. and in real life, he was his wife, so... That that, that could have happened. happened. That be. could have absolutely been the way that it actually yeah. worked. I mean, it 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 directly correlates to his life. He was a vaudeville guy, and then he lived in New York, and mm-hmm. he it moved to, to L.A. Be. I mean, it's yeah. It was they were probably just telling his exact story yeah. in that movie. What, what they movie did that it? a lot. It was something to sing about. Something to That's sing the about. Movie. Yeah, nice. it's an actual Cagney film. Yeah, it's a Cagney film. Uh, this was when he started working for, we'll get into it, but the smaller studios that were called Poverty Row. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked now. Let, uh, how, how do we, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So he, 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 he goes to, uh, New York and his brother is like, becomes his like advocate back home. Right. His brother's acting as his agent. Um, and he's, he scraped together a deal finally to raise Cagney's salary from $400 a week to a thousand dollars a week. And I did the old, the old calculator. That's four hundred is six grand, a thousand is fifteen grand. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it, you know. Okay. So, question though, like how how is he able to negotiate that? Because isn't Cagney under contract? Can't they like sue they, the shit out of him or something? Yeah, I mean, they could try to do that and get blood from a stone or whatever. But mm-hmm. also, more than likely, so his big argument later on, I he, it was he's he's probably starting to pull it right here is he is a huge draw. I mean, mm-hmm. he is his movies make huge dollars, you know. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers knows that. So mm-hmm. he knew he could walk out because he knew, you know, they're, they're going to come crawling back. Yeah. Because without him, 
they're losing out on a lot of money. Right. And so they knew that, he knew that, and his brother definitely knew that. And so, yeah, basically every time he would walk out, that was the case. It was like, okay, fine, I'll just leave, and you guys can find a new James Cagney. And there, right. there was no other James Cagney, right. you know. So here yeah. I am thinking that James Cagney pulled a Bruce Willis, and it was really Bruce Willis pulled a James Cagney. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Shaved his head bald and started uh, being a real pain in the ass do you know that's funny i'm do you know you remember the story that kevin smith always tells about working with bruce willis yeah and said he would never the, do a studio film again wait wait, wait tell me the story i've never heard this it, it's all over the internet so you guys should listen to the full version uh from kevin himself but in re- short the part that i was ever seeing is they had the, the studio was having a dispute with the writing of kevin and bruce and while they were on set and they were going back and forth and the studio exec got on the phone with Bruce Willis while they were on set and the whole crew's around watching and he goes, give me the phone. And he's talking to him and goes, yeah, uh-huh. He goes, well, how about this? Let me ask you one question. Who else are you going to get to play, John? And, uh, you know, when are they going to start? And and it was just silence. He goes, that's what I thought. And he goes, make the fucking changes. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> Bruce Bruce Willis got his way. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah, dude. You know, he's known for rewriting your whole character if you're in the movie with him he's known for writing characters out and you lose <laughs> that your is job. so frustrating <laughs> yeah I, yeah I, that is very frustrating yeah man yeah but he he's... cooks a mean chicken apparently in his <laughs> 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 hey look he 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 did it man i mean he definitely uh he had a whole career that is for sure <laughs> yeah. just a ruined whole... a lot of other people's lives while he was at it <laughs> <laughs> So the CAG returns to the studio for $1,000 a week, um, and he did a movie called Taxi. That's the one where he's actually shot at, and he says, you dirty rat. He did that movie, Taxi. It's a really good movie. Really good. Yeah, that's the one where the guys, there's the scene where he's shooting down at the cops, and one of the cops shoots the Thompson submachine gun at the window that he's at. Yeah. And in real life, a bullet went where like his head just was and right yeah right and that's where he said no more shooting at me ever again <laughs> <laughs> what a prima donna yeah right so he returned uh, to the studio he did the movie taxi where he actually gets shot at the part where he's shooting down at the cops and the cops shoot the thompson submachine gun at him and yeah but it was a thompson they don't have anything to worry about they're not yeah. gonna shoot anybody in the head with that thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Well, he was a he was a uh, he was a sharpshooter with this Thompson apparently, and he had only had like a half a bottle of liquor that day, so there was no doubt about it. He was not going to shoot our beloved movie star in the head. A hey, uh, question: Was liquor stronger back then? Like, was a bottle of liquor like uh, like or now they're what? A bottle of whiskey's like what forty proof or I'm sorry or, or eighty proof? Like, uh, it's forty percent, right? Like a bottle of liquor is like forty percent, right? Yeah. yeah. Was it, so the was it term, stronger yeah. back then? I got you here. I got an answer. The the term proof comes from the way that they used to test alcohol back in the frontier days. So no, they would add, they would take a little bit of the spirit and they would add a a certain like amount, like a spoonful, a teaspoon or something full of gunpowder. And if it lit on fire, it was to be proven. It was of proof that it was strong (laughs) enough where if it didn't light on fire, it was watered down too much. And they didn't want to prove it. it, You know, gunpowder should light on fire. So yeah. <laughs> nowadays proof just means double the percent. So 80 proof is 
forty percent alcohol. I'd and say it was more. Potent, the answer, actually. the long, the short answer to that is no. It wasn't really stronger. It was just oh. laced with gunpowder, maybe. <laughs> That's so fucking interesting, dude. Yeah. What? Yeah. I know they drank a lot more of it back in the day. Yeah. I mean, it might not have been stronger, but we were talking about it at the time. Like, in the 1930s, I saw uh, Walt Disney's schedule recently, his, like, studio schedule on a on his big, like, you know, adventure to South America and all that. And it, it said 11.45 a.m. to 12.30. 30 were cocktails by the pool. 315 to 345 were cocktails in the lounge. And then from like 8 to like 1 a.m. was just like it, the schedule just said heavy binge drinking for the rest of the night. That was like <laughs> these people used to dude, people I mean, you know, there's the whole thing where like oh, Mad shit. Men showed us for real, but I, yeah, man, these people Holy were getting shit. sauced at lunch. You know, Holy like shit. we're talking about a time where like uh, uh, I mean, you know, bro, people were getting so drunk that the entire country said, we got to take a sobriety break here. Yeah, man. Seriously. Yeah. They were like, we got to dry out. Just let us like dry out for the twenties. Dude. They're like, we're fucking up so much. Like, look what we did for the, you know. Or actually, that came later. I was like, look what we did to the stock market, but that came after. (laughs) Yeah. Churchill for breakfast had uh, an ounce and a half of rye whiskey, a half ounce of cold brewed coffee, and some bitters. And that was like, <laughs> that was his breakfast. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What the <laughs> fuck? He puts cold brew coffee and bitters to get, like, coffee yeah. isn't bitter enough? <laughs> I, I, did, I did know about the Churchill part. I mean, everyone in World War II was super wasted. I mean, imagine, like, Jack <laughs> Warner. Imagine so Jack Warner, the studio head. Imagine these days you go to the studio head's office of Warner Brothers and the dude's just sitting at his desk at 8.30 in the morning with, like, a glass of whiskey. You know, like, that's what we're talking about here. That's amazing. I never yeah. want to hear anyone tell me I'm too drunk to do a job ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, no John one said Hamm they were... This has inspired me to drink more. <laughs> no one said they were productive. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, I think that the productivity speaks for itself of the output, you know? Amen. You, they, they, they built a whole industry drunk. <laughs> So Cagney follows Taxi up with a role as a race car driver, and the crowd roars with Joan Blondell. Oh. With his his main co-star, Joan Blondell. Question, did he actually drive? Or did, were they some uh, people at this time? Probably. Or did, did I, no, one, no one James Cagney probably drove while they shot at him, you know, <laughs> or in the, like he actually like punched people in the face <laughs> after the race. That's probably how the, the, the film was made. With Joan Blondell... Um, and then he played a boxer in Winner Takes All. And, it's, and speaking of, his co-star was this huge silent film stuntman. He stunted for like Buster Keaton and stuff, which like... Buster if, Keaton if, used a Exactly. Stuntman? Like if, if it was something Buster Keaton wouldn't do, <laughs> this guy would do it. And that's who Cagney <laughs> so did this boxing crazy with. Okay, and yeah. if you watch it, man, they lit each other up. They actually dude. fought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. It's amazing. It's that's a really good movie too. That's a boxing movie that doesn't get talked about a lot, and it's a James Cagney movie that doesn't get talked about a lot, where he played this boxer and he's like, you know, the drunk boxer. He basically played his dad. dad. Yeah, I was about to say. So he 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 pulled from experience there. Man, see, and that's Cagney did that. Man, every movie he made, it seems like it was something to do with his real life. It, It always seemed like. His, you know, Yankee Doodle Dandy, his big one, he played this vaudeville 
King. Mm. And it was a guy who he worked for, for real, in vaudeville tap dancing. You know, right, it was yeah. always like, maybe yeah. he wasn't human, man. That's what you call <laughs> the workings of a great actor. There you go. Very <laughs> but true. Was he ever a race car driver? Uh, who knows? Maybe. <laughs> he he was, uh, Dev. I forgot to tell you about this. He was really into sailing and painting. He was a painter. Interesting. He said if he had it all to do again, he would have become a famous painter rather than a famous actor. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I guess because painters don't answer to a studio. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. So, paint and do cocaine. <laughs> so while he's doing... These movies, um, he's, he's you know, now that he has come back to the studio, I guess he's really, he and his brother are kind of diving into, you know, their rights as, his right as an actor and other people's rights. This is, this is around the time where he's, like, getting into, you know, the formation of SAG, mm-hmm. where he and a bunch of Wait, actors. Wait, so he, he started SAG? He and, a, he and a bunch of other actors. Oh. But he was, at one point, he was president of SAG at one point, but we'll wow. get into that later. Okay. Yeah. But uh, he was a big part of starting SAG, and his walkout on the studio was gasoline on the fire Mm -hmm. of SAG. Like, him walking out and it working was it. And SAG, at this point, you know, was picking up speed, but it would get to a point where SAG would become so powerful so fast that they could walk into a studio and strike your studio if you didn't give them what they wanted. It's crazy, because, I mean, like, that's... I mean, that's interesting because, like, now it's like if you want to work in big movies, you have to be in SAG. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not even an option. Which is, it's as much as I love that SAG exists and they do uh, provide benefits and they do protect actors, mm-hmm. not as much as I would eat, hope they would, to be honest. You know, there's mm-hmm. still people getting hurt on set all the time and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, that's not all their fault, of course. Right. But, well, that being said, I still do. I their healthcare's not great either. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah. That being said, I. I I do, I don't know, I have a small problem with the fact that you're required to join right. a union to work. Right, know? yeah. It, it, and it, it's it's also, like, can be a little prohibiting to, like, new actors, too, who, like, don't have their SAG Definitely. credits yet, or, like, no one will, what's it called, Afni Doodle? Taft-Hartley. Taft- <laughs> <laughs> no one will Taft-Hartley them. You uh, know, I just wanted to say from the perspective of a film producer, SAG is amazing, and they've been nothing but there you go. kind yeah. and generous, and I wish You're nothing right. but their success yeah. in every Yo, what's endeavor. that red dot on Drake's head right now, right? Like, <laughs> well, like, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's like, yeah, like, it's literally, like, it's SAG's, like, if you want SAG actors, everyone has to be in SAG, which yeah. is, like, you know, kind of like, you know, that sucks a little bit. But yeah, I understand sure. why, too, though. I mean, that's where the power comes from if they didn't have that restriction they wouldn't have as much uh say you know what i mean like it it comes from a if you it's almost a necessity that wield the power that they have which is mostly used for good it'll get better too i mean we're i believe it or not in my opinion we're still in the kind of early days of sag you know i mean sag's not an old union older than some you know i don't know it's pretty old man i mean that was right around the time when the unions came about like in the early 1900s yeah yeah. Would it be it maybe late by like what a decade or something from the main ones? But yeah, you it's know. an old one. Yeah. It's not as old as like the Freemasons. <laughs> Is they're that not a, a union? They're not a union. <laughs> yeah. I'm I should just say we're not a union. <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, I know. That's why I said it. I was fucking with that. Yeah, he's doing Winner Takes All, and uh, he and his brother start looking into how Warner Brothers works. And Cagney got wise to a scheme that Warner Brothers was doing. But not only Warner Brothers, every studio in town 
was doing this, it was called block booking. And it was either called block booking or block bidding or sometimes blind bidding. And it's when a studio would only grant theaters access to their A films if they agreed to also screen a block of their B films as well. You can only buy this movie okay. if you buy these other movies too. Okay. Um, and yeah, like, and it got to, this got out of control super fast. Well, so, okay, so like to compare it, like if, if you want to, back when Fox was its own company, if you want the new X-Men film, you also have to take these five Fox Searchlight exactly. films. Like exactly. Fox Searchlight's our indie brand. You have to take these five films. No one's well, trying. sort of, except for it wasn't their indie brand. These were just Warner Brothers films that were their B ones. Okay. The ones that they just didn't spend as much money on. Oh, okay. I mean, All I right, guess sure, in a yeah. way, yeah. Yeah. Well, I but mean, that's, was, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's still kind of the same concept. It's like, yeah. this is, this is the branch of movies we spend less money on, you know? Yeah. Like in one case, uh, Paramount Pictures president Adolf Zukor, he <laughs> had something. <laughs> Adolf. Well, there's Zucor. the problem right there. Red flag. <laughs> there's never been a bad Adolf, you know. Um, <laughs> what, what what are this Führer's demands from Paramount? <laughs> this this man, Paramount. This man, the Paramount Pictures president, he bought a chain of theaters called Paramount Publix totaling 1,200 screens, and he forced them all to sign this this block bidding contract, then they would agree to this method on, a, on an all-or-nothing basis. Like, either you do the block thing, you cannot negotiate, or we're just not going to show... And he owned these theaters. Or we're just not going to show Paramount Picture films in your theater. And So, wait, wait, wait. When did the law come about? Because now... Movie studios are not allowed to own theaters. No, block block bidding was outlawed. Uh, let's see, I have it down outlawed. here. It was a, it wasn't out. It was just in 1938, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division filed lawsuits against everybody, uh-huh. and uh, there was a there was a case called the Famous Players Lasky suit, and that was leveled levied against all the distribution companies. The Department of Justice brought apart brought upon lawsuits on all eight major mm-hmm. studios, and uh, it, no, it's basically it's all but outlawed. Really. Now, now, something you mentioned before was uh, sometimes during these block bookings, you said that they would they would be forced to buy movies that like literally weren't even made yet. Yeah, so there so, were like, they, you just they, didn't know what you were buying. Yeah, they had to agree. There was a there was also full line forcing where you also had to buy the short films that they would put out, all of them. And yeah, some of these movies that they were buying weren't even made yet. The only the only knowledge that the theater could gain was this movie's being made, here's the actor, here's the genre. Uh, look forward to it coming to your theater in the fall. Now, did this ever lead to a situation where since the movie was already sold, they just didn't make very good movies because why yeah, bother? No, that's absolutely what would happen. It's like this movie is literally already sold before we even started making it. So why are we, I mean, unless Jack Warner suddenly actually got a passion for the arts and wanted to make good films, you know, I, but I, I, think, I think he more than likely was like, spend as little money as possible and a lot of that probably did lead to you know set accidents and cheap materials and i'm sure like i'm sure really dangerous sets yeah. <laughs> did any of this lead to like 
a fatigue with the audience? Did the ratio of bad movies exceeding good movies cause a disinterest in going to the theaters and like I, cause a theater slump? I don't nah. know. Everybody nah. loved the new genre. Yeah. It's too new. They can fuck it was up a, and still yeah, get away with it. Yeah, and you know, at this time, we're talking about a theater was an air-conditioned building that you could go into. You know, <laughs> sure. I mean, for real. Like, there's a place where you can go and be out of the heat and be out of the Great Depression for like five minutes, you know, because this is <laughs> sure, the height of yeah. the Great Depression where this right. is happening, you know. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating because it's like arts do very well during the during totally. depression. Like we haven't been in a depression in our lifetime, but we've been in a couple recessions. Definitely. And like the video game market always does great during these yeah. time periods because it's like people, st- no matter what's happening in the world, people still need entertainment. For sure. Yeah, so. absolutely. It's re- yeah, it's recession proof. It definitely will change. And uh, things become new and different, mm-hmm. but yeah, the film so industry. They, they tried. They they tried to eliminate this culture of block scheduling and purchasing uh, from the studio system by preventing the studios from being vertically integrated, so they couldn't own their distribution as well as their ex- exhibition. Uh, I see. So. So the way it works now is you have like a film studio or a production house that makes a movie and then that company will go to a distribution company and then the distributor will take that film to the theaters, which are called the exhibitors. So there's no direct connection between the studio and the theater chain now. You you require. So why is Disney allowed to own the El Capitan? You could self-distribute, but. Huh? Yeah, that's a. I've I've wondered that. D- Disney. I mean, Disney does own a theater still. They own the El Capitan. I always wondered why that was legal. Maybe because they're yeah, considered but so more of like a corporation. Is, so yeah. Know. So what most likely happens is they Disney as a studio still has to give. Let's say they're playing, you know, the new Pixar movie or whatever. They have to give that movie to a distributor. Then that distributor gives it back to the El Capitan. So it, it and that's so everybody gets their cut and percentage. It's the same way with like liquor sales. So if you have a, a distillery, the distillery is required by law, even if they make their bottles and let's say they sell their bottles at the bar downstairs, like the, the distillery I worked at in St. Augustine was like this. They had to take those bottles from a federally bonded warehouse. They put them on a truck. They let them go sit in a warehouse, a federal warehouse that's bonded in Gainesville. Owned by the government. They, they sit there for three days and then they get back on a truck and they go back to the distillery so, so they weird. can go in the fucking bar downstairs and be served. That's how and Mississippi is too. It, that's yeah, so it's, weird. It's specifically designed, but it's government telling the companies that you have to give 50% to this company of your revenue, 50% to this. And it, so it's to stop like monopolizing and stuff, like to stop it's, so that one person doesn't have too much power, I guess. It's to prevent one company from being able to do exactly what these studios were doing right. and, and dominate and say, force, you know, other smaller boutique stuff to operate on their terms as the bigger company. Here's a great example. Disney and the new Star Wars. Disney told all the theaters that if they wanted the new Star Wars when it first came out, The Force Awakens, they had to run it for at least like, you know, 90 days or some shit. I don't know what it was exactly. It might have been 60 days, but it was a long time. And that's fine if you're, you know, AMC in the middle of, you know, Atlanta or Los Angeles or something. But it's not okay if you're, you know, mom and pop shop theater in the middle of, 
you know, with Micanopy, Florida or some, you know, small town right. of 1000 people where yeah. like after two weekends, everyone Everybody's in the city seen has seen the film. <laughs> right, so you right. can't, you're not going to make any money off of ticket sales. You make all your money. And then what Disney also did is said for the first three weeks or four weeks, instead of giving the exhibitor and distributor 50%, Disney's requiring that they keep 90%. And then after that first period, the first few box offices, then it would go to 50%. So that was unprecedented too. Nobody had ever done that. But basically they were like, we're, you only get this movie under these terms. Right. So if they wanted to survive and people wanted to have that movie show and they had to accept it. Another example, speaking of Star Wars and Disney and stuff, and episode six, uh, the third of the original three made. So the sound designers. Oh, and by the way, I heard this on American Innovations on Spotify, Spotify podcast by Wondery. They have three episodes titled Star Wars Cinema Technology. And that's where I heard about this. And it was uh, explained to me that uh, the sound design uh, engineers and sound designers love what, all the hard work they put into the first and second movie. But when they watched them in theaters that were like their hometown local theaters, the theater stereo wasn't up to par quality enough to be able to deliver the sounds. So the movie sounded completely different in a normal lower quality theater. Whereas like the theaters that had the right equipment were only in like big cities like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, so they created a company called THX. Um, and for oh, the third film, yeah. yeah. So T what THX did is they developed stereo systems for movie theaters. And for the third movie, George Lucas said, You're nobody is gonna be able to show Star Wars in their movie theater unless they have THX. a THX sound system. Wow. Wow. So that's how they got their sound hardware distributed into all their theaters. But again, that's kind of like one of these flex moves yeah. from like once you have yeah, so market cool. control of like everybody wants your movie or everybody, you know, wants James Cagney, yeah. you know, they you flex and, the and small, show your muscles. And the, small, so. and the small theaters are like, yeah, great. Great. Can't wait. Can't wait to buy. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait to buy all those new speakers for my theater. I just <laughs> I just happened to buy them last month for the theater, you know, the ones that we have now. But I guess now I'll just go buy the THX ones. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that does that does suck for s some smaller things, but I'm I'm a huge fan of creator's intent. And if if needed barring certain experiences uh and it sucks it's like you know like yeah, it'd be great if everyone could see it and it was mm. cost appropriate for everybody but like i think if it if it gets in the way of um the art being experienced the way it was meant to be experienced like i'm 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 a fan of like making those the making those uh those hard those hard uh cutoffs um like for example i would not be upset at all if like tarantino was like you can't show my movie if it's not on 70 millimeter. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, cause that's the career's intent. It's meant to be watched on 70 millimeter. There's always a digital version too. Cause again, not every theater has right. 70 millimeter fill like film capacity. But like, you know, I, I also don't think there's anything wrong with being like, no, my movie was only meant to be experienced in this way. And like, I, I will not allow it to be experienced anywhere else, any other way, you know? Yeah, it was totally a flex. And really it was, a, it was really the only only big studios could do this. Only big studios had the clout, 
had the movie stars, had the money to even make demands like this. You know, like what we were talking about. I mean, yeah, George Lucas could make the demands about THX. And in this case, in the 30s, the big eight studios were the only ones that could force theaters into block booking, really. And right. so... Like, George Lucas le- wouldn't have been able to do that with the first movie. It was only right. because it right. got so popular. Yeah, exactly. It made a big gap between the big studios and the small studios. There was definitely a class gap here from the big studios and, you know, like I was saying earlier, Poverty Row, (laughs) the smaller studios. And also with independent films. So usually what smaller studios would do instead of block bidding or block booking, they would would have a movie star, uh, their star, that they would make like six or seven films with and they would sell that to the smaller theaters. They'd sell, like, all these, like, six or seven films. And that's one of the reasons why you have all these movies from back in the day where it was... I mean, the best I can think of, really, was, like, not... It was later on, but it was, like, Clint Eastwood in all of the... So you're, so you're saying they were basically, like, indie stars. Yeah, And they these were popular were like in the indie circles. Right. So, a Timothy Chalamet. There, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think he's getting more. He's big now, but, but like for yeah, a while, totally. he was just like the indie darling, he was like, the, like, like a Chloe Savini, yeah, yeah somebody yeah. like that. Someone like who's like he's darling. only in these weird indie movies, right. and a certain group of people love those movies. Yeah, but like your mom has never heard of, right? Like fucking Ladybird, like right for sure. <laughs> and also, it was leading to this is where you definitely had those art house theaters. Where if you wanted to go see a film that was made by one of these Poverty Row studios, you might have to go seek out the theater in town that's even showing it. Right, you know? okay. Because the big theaters are already full. I mean, at one point, Zucor from Paramount, Adolf Zucor, Mr. <laughs> Adolf himself, at one point he had theaters by a block of 104 films a year, showing two films a week for 52 weeks consecutively. And like I said, I mean, they had to they had to do this. So these theaters were if you take that, that's just paramount. If each studio is doing that, if eight studios are doing this, Holy shit. your theaters booked for the rest of the year. That I is mean, to be fair, movies a year. Yeah. to be fair, like you didn't really have to do it. I mean, if you didn't do it, right. Adolf may, you know, like put you in a really <laughs> good work camp. <laughs> For the, yeah, for the movie in kind. <laughs> Zucor, Zucor is the most Dungeons and Dragons name I've Zucor. ever heard. He should have made Zucor Pictures. Zucor, right. yeah. yeah. Dude, so, if Zucor <laughs> Pictures had been the name of the company, like they would be the dominant movie force <laughs> in the world. So, anyway. <laughs> so, James Cagney knows about this. He knows about block booking. He knows that Warner Brothers is just making... Literally, every film that you made this year, you sold, no matter what. So, he knows they're rolling in dough. And, basically, he says, uh, you're making all this money, selling every picture you make, and you can't afford to pay me more than $1,000 a week. That's bullshit. I'm a huge pull for you. I'm just as big as Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson makes four grand a week, and that's what I want. And that's the equivalent of sixty grand a week, by the way. And uh, oh, also, he wanted no more than four pictures a year. He did not want to make more than four movies a year because at the time that he started making these demands, he was working a hundred hours a week. 
And not only he wasn't the only one. Kids were working 100 hours a week. Young teenagers are working 100 hours a week. All these actors, you know, you'd sign this contract and they would make you do six movies in a year, you know, and it was you were you were like I said on uh, part two, I mentioned where you'd walk from one stage to the other. Yeah. You would just literally get off of one shoot, walk to the next, you know, and it was it wow. was never ending. Wow. And, uh, uh, and that's that's on top of learning your lines yeah. and like all those. Yeah, shit, right? totally. And then some cases for him dancing, you know, right. getting shot at, right. boxing, <laughs> racing cars, like 100 hours a week is a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To do what he was doing. Yeah. And he 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 basically said, "Look, I'm going to do four pictures a year for you." Pay me four grand a week right now when I'm this white hot star. But if for whatever reason I start to fall off popularity, then we can just fluctuate my salary, mm-hmm. you know, as we go, which is what a crazy idea, right? right. I mean, <laughs> you're insane, man. You're insane. Yeah. And especially because uh, at this point, he's sending back money to mom. And not only at this point, though, his mom is not the only one he's sending money back to. He's sending back money to his old neighborhood buddies and he would send care packages to a lot of his friends like just house supplies and sometimes he'd pay their rent you know stuff like that he had his third wife his fourth wife (laughs) five other families and illegitimate children no way man cag cag stuck with old billy his whole life man that was he got married one time. <laughs> he is sending all this money to his mom for her to sit there and still be like, you ain't never going to be yeah. nothing. When are you going to get a real job? <laughs> when are you going to get a real job and stop sending me thousands a week? You lazy sack of shit. I mean, his his brothers are doctors and lawyers. So it's like, yeah, for sure she was saying this to him. you know. And they're probably all sending money to mom, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure dude, the lawyers and doctors are sending it back to her. up, she's dude. Just, she is she, like... She did it right. That's what you do you raise kids to pay you when they get old enough. you raise successful kids this raise was before kids. we had social security it was that's your kids are your social security and you know at the time uh, she's probably like the ripe old age of 32 by now you know so it's about time to start making that cake off your kids <laughs> So Warner Brothers once again told him, "No, fuck you. You're getting your thousand a week. We just we just agreed on this, and now you want your four grand a week. It's not going to happen." So once again, he walked out of the studio. <laughs> he tap danced away. He tap danced yeah. once again out of the gates of Warner Brothers into the night. <laughs> and uh, this time around, Warner Brothers said. Okay, well, you can walk out, but this time we're suspending you. They suspended him. They put him on six months suspension, no matter what. Even if, like, basically, you can't come back for six months, no matter what. And he was like, "Oh, great! Oh, I don't have to work hundred hour weeks yeah. for, for six months. <laughs> right. Oh God, no! What will I ever do with all this free time?" <laughs> so, Start a uh, union. <laughs> Start a union. That's exactly what he did, Deb. That's exactly what he did. He went he went to New York and he spent six months. Well, and he also he hung around LA as well, but he spent that six months basically galvanizing SAG with the other actors, the Screen Actors Guild. Um, and like I said, I mean, he did this also because he he was genuinely disturbed to see like teenagers working a hundred hours a week. You know, fourteen year old kids are on set 
for a hundred hours a week. <laughs> what a what a what a progressive he was. Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> slap women and make kids work right, hundred hours right. a week. It's some liberal hippie. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, God, you know, I guess this this is kind of the perfect time to bring it up. Uh, he was basically called by a lot of people like a communist sympathizer. You know, he very much was. He never he never called himself communist and during the whole uh, blacklist in the 50s that we'll get into at some point I'll have a whole a whole yeah. three-parter on that probably yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they the House of Un-American committee House of Un-American committee yeah yeah it was, it was called the House was, of Un-American committee it was something it was like the House of Un-American something did let him go in the 50s for not being communist so he he never quite was communist mm-hmm. but his involvement with SAG and other unions didn't help. Karl Marx know. would be proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for Karl, sure. Karl for Marx sure. Would be proud. And he also he had some money dealings with he made donations to cotton farmers that were striking in California. Uh, he bought an ambulance for a Spanish Republican army during the Spanish Civil War. And like I Dude, said, you know, I he's, he's love this guy. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. He started uh he and Ronald Reagan actually at the time. Ronald Reagan was an actor at the time. And he and Ronald Reagan were going around town, kind of like spreading this labor laws word, you know. And <laughs> what? Wait, you didn't know this? No, I, the, the 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 part of that sense that surprised me the most is the Reagan part. Oh, Ronald. Oh, oh, I know. No, Ronald Reagan in the '30s was way more before the before liberal. the money corrupted him. Yes, yeah. I think so. He was before he, was, he sold out for money. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was going around with James. Cagney talking about like we need more rights and labor laws and stuff which I mean at the time I guess he was being paid by the studios so maybe that was just in his best interest but uh and this was but this was before the Red Scare was happening in the the 30s communism was kind of being seriously looked at you know it was less of like everybody was terrified of it I mean there were definitely a lot of people who were terrified of it but it was the Great Depression so a lot of people were kind of saying like well maybe Maybe communism is the way, you well, know. Well, let's Homer. take a second look at this. I don't know. Capitalism yeah. seems to be yeah. fucking up right here. It's, yeah, uh, capitalism yeah. doesn't seem to have worked for me it's since like, I got to wait in a fucking bread line. <laughs> it's like when you're, like, you know, separated from your girl but not quite broken up with and you go on another <laughs> date and you're just feeling out the waters and, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> After this sabbatical, um, uh, Cagney comes back into the uh, uh, come back into the office, and uh, Warner sits down. He's like, "All right, now listen. Now I'm gonna let uh, I'm gonna let this, this little transgression slide, but uh, you're not gonna be acting this way on my studio anymore." And Cagney is like, "Comrade, our studio, our studio, comrade, <laughs> <laughs> it's our studio." <laughs> Uh, like and did he say that to Adolf? Because I'm sure Adolf just Adolf. screamed and had him taken away. <laughs> Adolf probably did not like. Did not like I feel like I feel like they would have had some disagreements. Anyone uh, named Adolf? Is, Adolf was probably not a big fan of the unions. Yeah, anyone named Adolf has has gone on record with being against unions. <laughs> like at first, he was just indifferent and kind of chill, but then he was like, "Enough of this!" And they just like went after him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but- so he he went to galvanize the unions of, of some other people, um, yeah. and then. 
how quickly did it take for unions to catch on as like a thing? Very fast. Okay. Like, I mean, they had been rumbling, but one of the things was, like I said, this gave them a lot of power here. SAG basically, you know, by the time his six month suspension was up in 1933, he had spent that six months with them, and his walkout had become this this poster, you know, for SAG. It was like, look, James Cagney is walking away from the studio. Because he doesn't agree with the way that things are there. Clearly, we have got to unionize and do something Mm -hmm. about this. You know, his and not to mention, like I said, I mean, his first walkout worked, and this second one is going to work as well. This second (laughs) walkout, I mean, you know, he goes back to the studio, right? Yeah. The second that when his six month suspension was up, uh, Frank Capra, legendary director, director to. you know, I guess a wonderful life. I mean, I, I could go on for days about what Frank Capra directed, but legendary director, he brokered a deal between James Cagney and Warner Brothers for three grand a week and four films a year. So instead of his four grand a week, it was three grand, but he did get his four films a year deal. So four films a year seems like a big cutback from what they were asked to do before. Yeah. Um, the studio's like four films a year we, we, we film a film every six weeks what are you talking about <laughs> i mean so like was this was this did this lead to more free time or I'm like sure. did they just spend oh, yeah. or did they spend longer on those four films no i'm sure it, it led to a lot more free time for him okay you know probably i mean and by this point he was doing a lot of other stuff outside of the studio like right. unionizing against them right like so starting this, the american communist right, party right. yeah <laughs> so this gave him a lot more time with his wife and a lot more time to do Who? that type of stuff. <laughs> Who? <laughs> the wife he's not legally allowed to have? <laughs> um, wait, so... Um, uh, when the when the, when the unions first like started like coming up, him being such a big part of it, uh, did it kind of like... I mean, I'm sure the studios had a big pushback for these unions, right? Oh, yeah. And then with war. him being like... The, the the main the main uh, force behind this. I'm surprised the studio didn't just drop him entirely. Like I said, Jack Warner hated him, but they couldn't drop him. He's he was one of popular. the biggest stars in the world. It'd be like, I mean, I'm trying to compare him. I mean, I guess like a Brad Pitt. Yeah. I mean, you know, if Brad Pitt has a, a contract with a yeah. studio, they're going to do whatever he wants. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was... I mean, is are there even movie stars today as big as like Cagney I mean maybe like The Rock I guess yeah like just like as far as like box office numbers and yeah. stuff I mean because I feel like it, it well, now I mean this is kind of stars in general oh sorry what, what's up no go ahead oh it's like stars in general now it's like more decentralized I feel like For sure. it, back in the old it's kind of hard to imagine because back in the older days like there was like the big star and now there's just like there's a lot of stars that are big but it's like one it's like fractured there's more yeah, screens there's one thing. yeah there's more screens and you know he wasn't even the biggest at the time i'd say humphrey bogart was way bigger than james cagney you know humphrey bogart was absolutely the star yeah he might have been like a pit or something yeah absolutely humphrey bogart was definitely the pit or the Clooney. Okay. james you know, cagney was, was like you know the non-goofy seth rogan James Cagney, yeah. <laughs> James Cagney was like Johnny Depp. Okay, like in his fame. Okay, you know he was like, yeah, yeah. I would say, and, okay, yeah, in yeah. his real life, maybe too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. If you want to believe Ooh. tabloids, I don't know. Man, oh, we'll do that film history episode one day. Just the Johnny Depp episode. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be that'd be interesting. Yeah, be interesting. because it's like yeah, yeah. So so he gets this three grand a week. 
four films a year and the old the old calculator that's $45,000 a week, which is very good. He starts a steady stream of films after the suspension. Uh, most notably, though, he did Hard to Handle, Footlight Parade, where he got to put the old CAG tap shoes back on, and a movie called Here Comes the Navy. And on Here Comes the Navy, he met a, an actor named Pat O'Brien, and that would become his best friend, basically. Cagney's, like, best friend throughout life was Pat O'Brien. After they and did he Here met Comes him in his, what, like, mid-30s? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this man ain't got no time, bro. He's a, he's he's wor- he's been working. <laughs> he didn't have time for friends <laughs> until now. Until now, he's got this cushy <laughs> four movie deal. And he wasn't. Oh. I mean, that is funny that you say that though, because he wasn't a big social guy. He what Cagney wasn't hanging out at the Villanova all the time mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, I mean, he was basically. I mean, for one, working a hundred hours a fucking <laughs> week. So like, he doesn't ever go out you know he wasn't a big drinker yeah because his dad was a drunk right he was kind of a chill guy who would go home and go to bed and memorize his lines you know and be with his wife he was just kind of like he wasn't the party guy he definitely was no uh, like errol flynn you know <laughs> and um but pat o'brien introduced cagney to some other actors spencer tracy frank McHugh, and ralph bellamy uh louis Calhoun, calhern and frank morgan and this group would become, they got a nickname from the tabloids, the Irish Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> and they were basically like, the Rat Pack came later, and then the 80s, the Brat Pack came along. Well, in the 30s, there was the Irish Mob, <laughs> and it was Pat O'Brien, uh, like I said, Ralph Bellamy, James Cagney, Spencer Tracy, Frank McHugh, and Frank Morgan. Oh, and, dude, that's so cool. And they they were just the guys. beat their way into Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> they were just going down the road, all throwing punches at everybody they passed. Dude, that's so cool. That's um, such a, nah, I, I don't know why. I don't know why I find that so endearing. Oh, it's, that is. it's yeah. awesome, dude. I love yeah. these stories about these like old school movie stars, all you know, well, hanging it, out. It kind of reminds me of DiCaprio and Tony oh, McGuire. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that, yeah, that whole crew, you have yeah. this all pop up. Like I said, I mean, the Brat Pack in the '80s was famous, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had Rob Lowe and Charlie Sheen, and who else was in the Brat Pack? Dad, do you remember? Yeah, like, Molly Ringwald and. Yeah, um, yeah. What's his face? The kid from Weird Science and Sixteen yeah, Candles. See. I don't remember. His uh, name. Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Anthony Rob Lowe, Michael Hall. Andrew see. McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwall, Ali Sheedy. Yeah, you know it was like, and they all Phoebe hung out Cates. all the damn time. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. And, I can't. I can't wait to. I can't wait for the tabloids to to, to give our, <laughs> our group our group a name. They're just gonna call us like. The rat asses or <laughs> The Dondo degenerates. <laughs> the Dondo rats. The street kids, bro. Street That's kid. what I'm going for. The street kids. They think they're going to call us, what is it, Poverty Row or whatever? Poverty <laughs> Row, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Broke Boys. The Broke Boys. <laughs> Poverty Row. These fucking pieces of shit degenerates came from the gutters and made movies. I That's, dude, it's going to happen. They never left. This man yeah, and then wanna... they went back to the gutters. <laughs> from, the, from the swamps of Florida and the backwoods of Mississippi <laughs> came the biggest filmmakers in history. <laughs> and then it's just a picture of us, like, wasted at a bar, like, sleeping on the floor or something. It's like, I'm, these are I'm the minds. Of all time, 
wearing a gator, like an actual gator, <laughs> just a whole gator skin suit. No, the gator's still alive. It's just walking over us. Yeah, the gator's he's, partying he's, with us. Yeah. Instead of a parrot, it's just a gator on my shoulder. Yeah, I mean they're you know they're they're. They're they're furless bears, you know. They're really, you know, that's really what you could be are. friends with them. Is what I'm saying. They literally, they don't even speak in a language that we can understand. It's just grunts and growls. They're animals. If, if they speak through biting you, <laughs> if you're doing bad, they'll bite you. If you're doing good, you won't get oh, bitten, maybe. Man. But by 1935, it's like it's full entourage shit for Cagney. By 1935, he oh, is. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> He was listed as one of the top ten money makers in Hollywood. Uh, he started getting more roles besides just gangsters. He played a lawyer who joins the FBI in G-Men, which is a fantastic movie. Uh, he also he plays Nick Bottom in Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night Dream, along with Mickey Rooney and Joe E. Brown. So he's doing Shakespeare. He's doing lawyer roles. He's 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 hanging out with the Irish Mafia. He's making money, top ten money makers in Hollywood. Oh yeah! That's amazing. Pretty sure we'll get pulled for using that song. <laughs> that's why, no, yeah. That's, that's why we it's got parody law. Parody law. <laughs> We're just singing it. The, we sing it is fine. Oh okay, I see. We sing we'll it. We'll just okay, have to yeah. do a whole song version by us. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Because we are we are so bad that no one <laughs> we'll, could ever construe that as the actual song. So we'll do some rehearsals and we'll get like the pentatonics version down, and we'll just three of us harmonize. <laughs> the uh, no chaser, whatever they're called, dude. Listen to this, though. I'm about to tell you guys something that happened in 1934 that is some of the wildest shit I've ever heard. In 1934, uh, James Cagney got involved in some politics again when he joined the revolt against what is called the Merriam Tax. So, what is a Merriam Tax? Merriam Tax. 1934, height of the Great Depression, governor of California, James Roth, dies. Just dies, which seriously, I, I don't blame him. Oh, I don't blame him for dying in the height of the Great Depression. He, I would have done so too. He died from being poor. Yeah, he died <laughs> the governor of California. It's like, well, this ain't it, fellas. I'm out. So, <laughs> so now the the gubernatorial race is on, and Frank Merriam runs against Upton Sinclair. And you you probably recognize <laughs> Upton Sinclair, his the muckraking reformist. He wrote The Jungle. You ever heard of the book The Jungle? No, I'm I'm fixated on their weird goofy names. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are all 1900s <laughs> names. You know, Sinclair is a very famous name. Yeah, Upton From Sinclair. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read The Jungle. It's some good stuff. Okay. And that's Upton Sinclair wrote it, and uh, he probably should have won. Also, is is this a fictional book? No, no, no. It's like it, it, it's a it's a whistleblower book. He was okay. he was like I said, he was a muckraker, which was like a reformist. <laughs> oh, in the early I had 1900s. no idea what that was. Reformed the government. You know, it was that's a whole that's okay. way too deep to get <laughs> that's, into that's right a now. Different podcast. He is running against Frank Merriam for governor, and Frank Merriam is friends with every millionaire in California. Basically, you know, he's like he's this is basically the the big millionaire guy running against the reformist and the Merriam tax was born 
It was a funnel of money from studio heads directly to Frank Merriam's campaign to be governor. And guess where the money came from that the studio heads were giving him? From the fucking actors. <laughs> they were taxing the actors of their studio. Every actor paid one day a week, gave their pay to the studio head so he could give it to Frank Merriam. What? Yes. What? Whether or not you've wanted to. What? It was not voted upon. You had no choice. You were giving money directly to Frank Merriam's campaign for governor. That is wild. Wild, dude. These studios were just doing whatever and whenever, and they did not care what you thought about it. Yo, the the actors were... Dude, the actors were the, must have been the Irish mafia, but the fucking studios were the goddamn commission. <laughs> the studio, the studio. If, if, if these actors are the Irish mafia, the studio is like the Taliban. Like that's what it looks like. La Costa Nostra on steroids. <laughs> so James Cagney and of course some other actors, most notably Gene Harlow. James Cagney and Gene Harlow said no. We're not doing that. We're not paying you a day's pay. We don't yeah. even like Frank Merriam. James Cagney said, if I have to take a day's pay to go to Merriam, I'm going to take a week's payout and send it to Upton Sinclair. That's the deal. <sighs> oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> so he was, he, he was definitely revolting against that. And uh, Miriam won. I mean, it, it went off without a hitch. So surprise, surprise, there, right? The big, the big backed by the studios guy. Damn. Wait. Yeah. So, did 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 uh? Sounds oddly reminiscent of current times. <laughs> oh, dude, it's never changed. It's never. What was that? What was there? What was uh the response to to that? Like, did he just not pay? He it? Just didn't pay it. He okay. and Gene Harlow didn't pay it. And so and basically, but, again, studios didn't do anything. Yeah. What are you gonna like, do? So it was more than likely the smaller actors who were like, well, had to get, I guess there goes a day's pay yeah, they, towards the millionaire Frank Merriam. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they just they didn't have the, the, the cachet to uh, dispute it. Did that go away once he got elected? Or now they're like, now we're going to still we're still keeping this. Mer- now that we know we can make you give up a day's pay for yeah. something, we're going to keep this up probably. for something else. They probably did it for a few things. This was the most notable one. Like 1934 Merriam tax, if you want to look in to it further wow. but this was definitely a very famous one and this again was something for sag to be like so you guys sure you still don't want to join sag right you know? yeah I mean, yeah they're yeah. literally taking that's the best marketing you yeah can have. no yeah. they're they're feeding it's... sag stuff every day yeah. it's like the studios were so terrible that they literally had to be unionized again <laughs> you know <laughs> so wild dude it's so wild uh, how is this not illegal I, I, that good question. It was 1934. It was the Wild West. Okay, yeah, you know? that makes sense, yeah. there probably just wasn't a law ever even con- con- <laughs> conceived. Like we'll never have to pass a law like that. That's right. crazy. Yeah, it's, no one would ever do anything. No one would be that evil. Hundred hour work days, spotlights and guards on set, but no, it's like even that the taxes just too much. Oh man! And then so Warner Brothers pisses off our boy one more one more good time <laughs> on his last film that he's doing for 1935. It's his fourth film. You know, it's around Christmas. Uh, it's called Ceiling Zero. Again, good movie. Just every Cagney movie is good to me, man. I don't know. I gotta, I gotta really watch. Him. I gotta watch. I, I, you got me more excited to watch more Cagney yeah, films. Yeah, for after sure. This. For sure. 
This one's Ceiling Zero, and it's he and his good buddy Pat O'Brien, part of the Irish Mafia, is doing this one. And they play badass World War One fighter pilots. And it's it's sick, dude. And James Cagney has this, like, mustache that apparently Jack Warner hated. So he made sure to keep it. Like, he was like, there's no way. Because he's doing other movies at the time, you know, with, like, this mustache. And Jack Warner's like, please get rid of that thing. And he's like, no. Just because you said that, I'm keeping it. You Holy know? shit. I love it. I, I wish I had... We had video footage of Jack Warner seething in his, Dude, in his office. Had, I wish the walls in that office could talk when James Cagney and Jack Warner. I bet they threw shit at each other when they had meetings. Like, I bet Scott's glasses shit. flew. Yeah, I was oh. going to say, these guys are drunk as fuck. <laughs> Can you imagine this, the, the screaming? No, well, like, the temperature on set. When like you like you you fish a take maybe he's like with the director talking about the next one, whatever and then some poor like PA has to come and be like uh, sorry Mr Cagney um oh. Jack Warner wants to see you in his office it gets better it gets better so since he since he's keeping his mustache the studio moves forward with making Pat O'Brien top build in the movie. A direct breach of the contract that they signed with James Cagney for the film where he was the lead. And so <laughs> this combined with the old Merriam tax. Also, there was a thing in 1934 where he wound up doing five movies instead of four. This is when he decided not only he was going to walk away from Warner Brothers, but he's suing them as well. He, oh. he took it. Yeah. He's, well, he when they breached the contract, he's got grounds yeah. now. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. He probably yeah. couldn't really do much of, in the court of law before that, but he's probably right. just wait. He probably just was like, I'm going to see how much stuff I can do to piss them off. And then when they slip up, then I'm just going to sue them. They might right. be yeah. like, we're playing from them day one. Yeah, that's true. I bet his brother, Henry, was like, don't sue him yet. Don't sue him yet. Don't sue him yet. And then finally it was yeah. like, okay, let's sue yeah, him. Wait, wait for them to break the contract. That's wild. Um, did uh, did, his, did his boy do anything in protest of like them uh, changing Pat, the billing? No, Pat O'Brien. I mean, maybe. I, but also... He, he didn't have as much pull. He wasn't as big of a star. Yeah, he wasn't as big of a star. And it's like, I don't know, man. It's like they're making me top build. I'm sorry. I yeah. Know, you know, I it's mean... It's really good for me. You've yeah, been top build on a lot of like, shit, dude. Like, yeah. Look, it's yeah. the Irish Mafia. It's just business, yeah. right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he goes into Christmas 1935. He walks out of Warner Brothers. In 1936, he is, like, in movie jail. No one, he can't work because he, mm -hmm. he has a lawsuit against Warner Brothers, but mm -hmm. he's still under contract with them. So, like, you know, Samuel Goldwyn and a few other big wigs in town are just telling him, I'm sorry, like, while the lawsuit is happening, we can't cast you. Yeah. We, yeah, we just yeah. can't get into that water. And his lawyer brother, William. His lawyer brother. His lawyer brother, William, <laughs> took his case uh, against Warner Brothers in court while he was doing it. So he finally he saw the opportunity to pursue his true passion. Of farming? Of farming. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he returned to upstate New York, and he started a farm. He bought a 69-nice acre, <laughs> acre plot of farmland with beach access and Martha's Vineyard, with a farmhouse built in the 1700s, which he and Francis moved into. So he, it looked this beautiful place. Yeah. How, beautiful. how old was he? During he was a, 
he was, let's see, it's 1935, 1936 by now. He was born in 1899, so he's 36, 37 years old. <laughs> so this is, like, clearly a midlife crisis. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of like a midlife vacation. Like, yeah. again, like, he probably doesn't really care about, like, not being able to work because it's yeah. like, bro, like, I'm so excited to just have some time to myself to not, for Jack Warner to not stress me the fuck out all yeah. the time. And uh, yeah, and it's also this this hilarious thing that you hear about, like, you know, all three of us always wanted to be movie stars when we were younger, and we moved to L.A., and this guy, James Cagney, is definitely one of those who, like, oh, I guess I'll be a movie star now, even though it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> and then he even had this whole thing where, like, throughout his career, he fought so hard against, like, I'm not just a tough guy, you know? Yeah. It's like, this, like, five-foot-five man was like, I'm more than just a tough, handsome, rugged man, you know? And it's like, Jesus, I'm dude. I'm a tap-dancing, boxing, tough, <laughs> handsome, rugged man. I got layers like an onion. I'm a sensitive guy, all right? I'm not just a tough guy. It's just, it's just, yeah, I, I, I get I guess you're saying it's like, it's like, the, the things that people work their whole lives for are just, yeah. like, thrust upon him. Yeah. And he has bitterness about it. And he's, he's like, ah, oh, yeah. I guess. And it worked in his favor. Yeah. I mean, those walkouts mm-hmm. in the studio, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it definitely, he became a yeah. huge movie star yeah. because of it. But, yeah, this yeah. this was basically, like, you know what? I hate this industry. I'm going to be a farmer. Like, well, fuck I, all this. This is There's this joke I tell about um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix a lot. That Joaquin Phoenix is seething atop a tower of money. Yeah, like, absolutely. absolutely. Joaquin Phoenix is the angriest person to be rich I've yep. ever seen in my life. No, absolutely. And it happens all the time. A lot of these guys mm-hmm. rose. But uh, yeah, the house is really cool. The house was 1700s. And it had a studio, a guest house, and a barn. He put a So Cagney put a vineyard on the farm. That was basically his like main thing was he made wine. Which man, we gotta find some Cagney. Some Wait, Cagney does that, does that, does that vineyard still exist? Yeah, it's still out there. Um, still making Cag wine? His, uh, probably not. Uh. We gotta find some though. There's but, some Cag like, wine. Did, did he around. like start like a brand? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I don't think he. I think he just sold it to like wine brands. I don't know. I'm not quite sure the goings on of his vineyard. I just know he was like fulfilling his. His, you know, his lifelong dream of having a farm. Right. Wait. So wait. Do, this is do, the perfect do, thing for the listeners to go do some research on. Yeah. Is go find us a bottle of Cag wine, dude. Find us a bottle <laughs> of Cag. I mean, do you think that exists? Do you think that a bottle of wine that he bottled still exists unopened? It's out there. Got to be out there. Definitely got to be out there. <laughs> exists unopened to if this some, day. If someone can find that, send us a bottle of Cag. <laughs> a bottle of Cag. It's not a cab. It's a cag. <laughs> cag. 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 When you every time you open the bottle, it just smacks you in the face. <laughs> the wine that punches you in the face. That wine, if that bottle exists, it's got to be so expensive. Yeah. Like that bottle is probably like five million dollars. And it's either aged well or completely vinegar, like <laughs> <laughs> completely just. Just pulp vinegar at this point. (laughs) I mean, if we 
If we find a bottle of cag wine, we should definitely deliver it to Warner Brothers. Oh my god. <laughs> they would, it just comes flying out of a window. Jack Warner's great-grandson. It's like, you bastard! Do, uh, does the studio hold anything against him to this day? Like, Probably like not. Just... No. Okay. That's how it always is. It's always like, you know... Uh, dude, for instance, Central Casting still brags about Brad Pitt doing central casting when he first moved to L.A. Yeah. They fired him. Oh. They fired Brad once. I mean, now, granted, he probably deserved to be fired. Don't get me wrong. But also, nowadays, you go in there, and they're like, look, we started. Right, yeah. Brad Pitt refuses to work with Central these days, apparently, yeah. because of the whole thing that went down. Really? That's what I hear. I hear that he does not use Central to, to book extras. Yeah. Yo, I don't blame him if you fired me, and then yeah. years later, you're using my name as marketing. Yeah, exactly. You go into the office, and my picture is up, even though, yeah, yeah. you probably at one point yeah. made his life hell. Yeah. His new policy is he's just been using only... Uh, I'll pull a local chicken suit actor. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that story is one of my favorites. I love that. Wait, what? Was, uh, Brad Pitt was in a chicken costume in front of El Pollo Loco when he was out here. Oh, like, yeah, Ooh. as a young starving actor. Really? Yeah, it's somebody in their life saw Brad Pitt dressed up in a chicken costume. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And uh, yeah, but he he kept the farm the rest of his life. He had this farm forever, even when they didn't live there. It was like the you know the summer at Martha's Vineyard farm house. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one day, uh, a car drives up the drive of Cagney's Vineyard, and I can just see him out there with like <laughs> Cagney's got like a beard and like like some like wine stained overalls on. You know, he's like trimming some some things with. With hedge clippers, yeah, 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 and this yeah. car comes up the driveway, and he's like, "I'm, I'm retired now. <laughs> I'm retired now." And they're like, "Come on, gag, just one more mission. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the biz." <laughs> dude it was literally like we were talking about that one where daniel day lewis went and became a cobbler in right. italy yeah, yeah, yeah. and how scorsese and leonardo caprio apparently had to go like track him down in some right. little italian village yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> so this car come this car pulls up and uh it's this guy named edward l alperser alperson from a small studio in new york called grand national films and edward told cagney that he wanted him for a three-picture deal with his little studio in New York, a hundred grand a picture, and ten percent on the back end, which was like the beginnings of actors Ooh, I was getting. Say, is that unheard of at this time? This was kind of new. Ooh, this was kind of a new practice to to, to give an actor, especially not had nothing to do with producing it to give an actor a percentage of the profits for the films. Yeah, that's how they got him. Fucking the Warners, dude. Even when he's not working for him anymore, because you know that like it's like they're gonna blame him for this forever. Yeah, like now I have to give actors back in because you took a movie of back in. Cagney was one of the reasons why this exists to this day. I mean, like I said, I don't know if he's the very first case, but he is one of the very first cases of this happening. And like I said, it was a hundred grand a picture, which uh, these days it was one point five million, basically, 
a, Wait, where a this picture. Where are supposed to do get the money for this? He, I, I don't know where Grand National Films came from. They didn't last. Oh, he okay. did, uh, he did two <laughs> films with them, and they ran out of money. Oh, they stole, yeah, they stole <laughs> yeah, their yeah, money yeah. on James Cagney. That's it was why. somebody who had a windfall of money. <laughs> start maybe this Edward L. Alperson. He like inherited millions from his uncle and went and you know, <laughs> went and got James Cagney basically. Wait, but, but so the movies didn't do well, or basically like it, it, the movies did well, but they weren't out soon enough to save the studio they did well i mean one of the one of the ones oh the two that he did were that great guy the one where he's the weights and balances officer oh, yeah whoa. he did that with grand national films oh, okay dev you know which one we're talking about great guy where he plays uh, an officer at the department of weights and balances <laughs> Yeah. I do know that because I remember that concept, that movie, and I was like, "This is ridiculous." This is... <laughs> but I this guess it's the most absurd dude, concept I've such, ever heard. It's the first Cagney movie I watched, and it's one of my favorite ones. This man goes around, and if you're a grocery store and you're selling produce or you're selling <laughs> or you're selling meat. He will go into your store and check and weigh your chicken, and he's going to search it. And if you have a lead rod inside of the chicken to weigh it down, he's going to punch you in the fucking face. I swear. Hey, this is not a comedy. No, no, no. He went around. And then tap dance on your body. <laughs> Dude, he slapped a man in the scene hard. Like, for real. For real, he slapped him very hard because he had a weight in his chicken. And of course, it was I wish. Like, I wish he would just use the chicken to do the slap. <laughs> just slap him with the chicken. We have to write a comedy with the same premise. I love it, dude. That's it's so such funny. a good movie. And of course, so, it's, it's musical like... movie. <laughs> Great when, guy. Wait, when did the Weights and Balance office go away? It's still there. What? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that totally exists. No, what? When you weigh your truck at a weigh station, you are you are adhering to the Weights and Balance's office. It's still to this day. It's still to this when did, day. Well, when did they stop weighing chickens? Are they still no, weighing chickens? They still weigh them. Somebody, I just don't know if they go in there with a suit and a top hat and weigh them and then slap you in the face like James Cagney did. I hope they do. To be honest, but, oh my god, dude! Part of the uniform. <laughs> yeah. So good, man. Oh. Everyone, go out and watch Great Guy immediately. Yeah, there's a bunch of really, really good copies out there. Uh, but then he, it, this is also where he did the movie uh, Something to Sing About, the story about him moving to L.A., signing a contract, oh. hiding his wife. So I, I, dude, that ultimate, was absolutely autobiographical. Yeah. Ultimate slap in the face. Yeah, because he's, he's, he's out for blood right now. Yeah, he's yeah. out for blood. He's He can't get hired by Did anyone Did he write it himself? No. Now, that is a question, because technically, no. But he had to have had, had to. something to do with the writing of this movie. Or at least the choosing of the script or something. Yeah. You know, I mean... I wonder yeah. if that was part of the deal. He was like, uh, I'll do three movies, but I get to pick which one of them. Yeah. Like, I get to ch- decide. Yeah. Like, I, I got this idea. Maybe I'm not a script writer, but sit me down with a script writer. Right. And, like, let's, you know. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah, they, they unfortunately, after that, they went belly up. Probably because they were paying Cagney hundred grand a film <laughs> before they even started. Was that unheard it. of? It was a lot of money. Like I said, I mean, this was a small studio, and they were paying them the, the equivalent. They paid him $3 million, basically, to do films. It's like, I don't know, like, yeah, you know, it was it just wasn't sustainable for them. And probably at the time, I mean, you look at the films, they're great films, and they're very well made, so I'm sure that they spent a pretty penny making them as well, mm. you know. And probably just some, who knows, who knows what was going on in that studio. But they went belly up. 
But um, Cagney also got into some politics here. Cocaine and a line budget. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> they call it a line budget for a reason, dude. <laughs> you got to budget those lines. <laughs> we'll get into that in film history, 80s history. Of film. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my god, dude! I cannot wait to get to Waterworld. Speaking of, <laughs> Waterworld should have been called Cocaine World, probably. <laughs> but uh, oh my god, old, I'm so excited! Old Farmer Cagney in 1936, uh, he agreed to be a sponsor for the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, and <laughs> the deal went sour. When he found out that this Hollywood Anti-Nazi League was secretly a front for communist recruitment programs, which did not make his communist sympathizer people that were calling him that, that didn't help his case. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so he, he pulled the plug on that one. I think Ronald Reagan was involved in that one as well. Wait, um, wait what year is this? This was 1936 at okay. the time. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, I'm, Reagan was that old, wasn't he? I just, yeah, it's, oh it's yeah, so weird for me yeah. to think about. Yeah, this is when he was in his oh. career, and I'm spanning a few years at this point. You know, I'm not going year by year, uh, like in 1938. Um, so 1938, finally, he Cagney found out. <laughs> it's so funny because I think the story really is like they had to come tell him, like at his house, <laughs> that he won his case against Warner Brothers. His oh. yeah, his brother successfully lawyered the deal and they offered him a five-year hundred and fifty thousand dollar a picture which was 2.2 million so it was still Warner brothers yeah so okay. Warner brothers came at them it came yeah. at him with an offer five years 150 grand a picture no more than two films a year and full say so over what he wants to do Oh wow! Like, wait, how much money again? That's it's equivalent of two point two million dollars a picture. Oh, okay. So basically, around four million a year. Okay. Two films a year. Okay. You know? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Films great. And whatever you want to do. So wait, wait, wait. so well, we we won. No Brad Pitt. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, so wait, so he won the lawsuit. But the lawsuit settlement wasn't money. It was a better contract. It was a better contract, and I think maybe it was like a settlement. Maybe instead of paying him. Some big, you know, because yeah. he wasn't like, he wasn't suing for back pay or anything. Right. He was suing for breach of contract. Right, okay. And so they probably instead just offered him a deal that he couldn't refuse. Cool. You know, I mean, this is 150 grand. It's 25 grand a month. That's the equivalent of 378,000. And that's uh, $6,200 a week, which is around $93,000 a week. You know, that sure. was the deal. And... Um, and this was a, a again a huge deal for SAG. Um, I mean, this man walked out, sued the studio, and then got offered the deal of a lifetime. Yeah, you know, I mean, if anything, actors everywhere were starting to see we have some pull in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the studios, the power began to wane for sure. Whole <laughs> <laughs> cag and beat the shit did, out. Um, did Jack Warner stay head of the studio throughout this entire thing, or at any point did Jack? quit because he was like i hate working with cagney i'm not gonna do this anymore i think jack warner still runs the studio to this day <laughs> they have his corpse like they have a skeleton i've never been to the warner brothers 
You ever been to the lot? studio? No, I've been oh, to the lot. Okay. I've never been in the uh, in the head office. You don't ever know. Listen, right. there's this like, under yeah. there's this underground bunker in Hollywood that has <laughs> the head of Walt Disney and the head of Warner, just like in Futurama. They're just in this glass jar. Talking, giving orders, barking at people. That's funny. And don't worry, Reagan and Nixon are there too. Yeah, <laughs> good. Well, Nixon not feel Hollywood. Everything. Nothing. He just wants to be a talking. Oh, he's just yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was friends with Elvis, so I don't know. So Cagney had successfully pulled the walk out. He said, "I walked out because I depended on the studio heads to keep their word on this, that, or other promises. And when the promises were not kept." My only recourse was to deprive them of my services. That was how he put it, dude. He knows. Yeah. He knows deprive he's Deprive them of my services. Deprive them of that. my services. Yeah. So it worked. They signed the deal. He he signed the he signed the deal that they offered him. He returned to Warner Brothers with a bang in 1938. He did a comedy called Boy Meets Girl and one of his most famous movies, Angels with Dirty Faces, in 1938. That's the one where he's screaming on his way into the execution chamber and all that. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's the one where he he and Humphrey Bogart and the Dead End Kids, um, Angels with Dirty Faces, and that would the Angels with Dirty Faces would earn him an Oscar nomination. Oh yeah, has he won any Oscars at Not this point? Not yet. This okay. is his first nomination. Oh wow. At this point, okay. yeah. And Pat O'Brien was in Angels with Dirty Faces as well, by the way. Oh, his okay. homie. Yeah. So they were getting to do movies back and forth together i'm sure pat was happy to have him back at the studio too oh. <laughs> i'm sure he's like this place sucks I miss my, yeah <laughs> yeah this place sucks without you cag and they were they were back though they were back to doing it they were back to making the movies um and again the dead end kids we will absolutely have an entire episode of them don't worry and <laughs> i have no idea what you're talking oh, about oh dude the dead end kids they did a, a broadway play called dead end and the movie was picked up for a movie, or the the play was picked up for a movie adaptation called Dead End. Mm-hmm. And the kids from Broadway were in the movie with Humphrey Bogart, and it's they, they became the Dead End Kids after this. And they went on to make all these films together, I think Angels I, with Dirty Faces. Do you remember you mentioning this? At some yeah, point? yeah. Okay. And we'll get into them. They they had a whole career as the Dead End Kids. Okay, it was amazing, cool. and they're awesome. Dead end kids um, sounds a lot like the street kids. Yeah, street kids, baby. Maybe that's a dead end kids. That's what we are. That's what we should be called. No, I mean that's um, what we exist with street yeah, kids. Yeah. There you go, street <laughs> kids. But it, yeah, so his first year back in 1938, he was the highest paid actor at the studio. He made about three hundred twenty-four thousand dollars, and he ended in 1939. He would end his first decade of acting with the film The Roaring Twenties. Oh man another uh, again just go watch all of them go watch all of them the roaring 20s is amazing again him and humphrey bogart they're world war one buddies and humphrey bogart is this like just murderer like he like kills children in the war and stuff he's like he has this line where like shoots this teenager and he's like well he won't be seeing 15 it's like he's he's and it's just they they go back to america and prohibition starts and they become these huge gangsters and they kind of like get pitted against each other it's so interesting incredible Dude, I'm yeah, I'm in. Yeah, sold me. Yeah. sold me. And the next big thing that he did, uh, he would win the Oscar, was Yankee Doodle Dandy, where he played vaudeville god and ultra patriot George M. Cohen, the guy who I was telling you about earlier, who he actually worked for in real life. Um, and they they began filming that movie the day after Pearl Harbor in 1941. 
Um, and so it was like super patriotic. Like their whole thing was like on set. They were, there were American flags everywhere. Everybody is, it's a very patriotic energy and they made Yankee doodle dandy with this, like coming out of Pearl Harbor, you know, I mean, that's probably why he won the Oscar for it. Part of it. It was I mean, like, could you imagine like a movie being made, started filming the day after nine eleven exactly. about like the writing of the Star Spangled Banner? Right. Like, exactly. Okay. It was America, baby. Right, and yeah. America loved it. And <laughs> Yankee Doodle Dandy cleaned the fuck up at the box office. Cagney got his Oscar. They, many critics at the time, have since declared it Cagney's best film, which I disagree with, but a lot of people think that. Uh, they drew parallels between Cohen and Cagney. Again, another movie that he did where they both began their careers in vaudeville, struggled for years before reaching the peak of their profession, were surrounded by family, married early, both had a wife who they like stuck with, who would just kind of let them go be movie stars and stuff. And, it was, or you know, it was like again. Cagney plays another movie where he's just basically playing himself, you know. And the film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, won three, including his Best Actor. And uh, in his acceptance speech, I, oh, go ahead, Deb. Sorry. I love how the Academy is just like you're so great at acting. It's like you, you've never done any of these things before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, did you see Angels with Dirty Faces? Did you see it? Did you see the Roaring Twenties? Um. Wh- Wait, well, hold on. No, continue. I'll ask my question at the end. Okay. You might answer it. In his acceptance speech, he said, I've always maintained that in this business, you're only as good as the other fellow thinks you are. It's nice to know that you people thought I did a good job, and don't forget that it was a good part, too. So he was kind of like, Aww. yeah, yeah. Don't was, forget the writer. Don't forget the writer, <laughs> babe. Exactly. Yeah, don't forget. I, you know, this movie was after Pearl Harbor. He knew what it was. You know, mm-hmm. he knew. But uh, they, they played the movie for the actual guy, George Cohan, in a private screening, like, right before his death. And he personally thanked James Cagney wow. for the wonderful portrayal of him. Wow. Yeah, which doesn't happen often. Yeah. You know, it does not happen very often. In 1942, Cagney announced that he's leaving Warner again, not on bad terms, but he just wants to start his own studio. He wants to start his own production company with his brother William called Cagney Studios. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Go ahead. They played the movie for the guy who the Gankle did. This is about the signing of the revolution. The signing no, of the no, 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 no. This oh. is for the vaudeville king George Cohan, who he played in Yankee Doodle Dandy. What's Yankle Doodle Dandy about? What's what's Yankle, <laughs> what's Yankle Doodle Dandy about? Um, it's about the vaudeville king George Cohan, and not the signing of the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. No. I am so confused. Where did you get that? The title? Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a, it's, a, it's a vaudeville movie. You actually should watch it. It'll answer a lot of those vaudeville questions for sure. Yeah, it's a movie about George Cohan, who was this, it was like one of the most influential vaudeville people of all time, basically. Okay. This yeah. was kind of, their, their relationship, I imagine, was similar to like Johnny Depp and Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Where he played him in a movie, and then he signed, like, Thompson signed off on it. Right, and stuff. right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we can continue. <laughs> that was funny, though. 
1942, he announced he's leaving Warner Brothers to start his own studio with his brother William called Cagney Studios. And he also he retreated back to the farm for a while. Um, what, what, Drake? <laughs> Drake's got faces going on. He has questions. So, so wait, let me just ask for him. What is Yankee Doodle Dandy about? Yankee Doodle <laughs> How is Dandy. It a patriotic movie if it's about vodka. Because this guy was a super patriot, George Cohan. He was like a real American dude. And. Okay, I'll watch the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, okay, yeah we can move yeah. on. I know we're short on time. We can move on. Honestly, it's not one of my favorites of his, so I've only seen it like once. I've, I watched all of his other stuff so much more. I mean, yeah, the it was a very patriotic movie. It was okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> the American flag everywhere. Okay, you know, and they sang like, "Where were you when Yankee Doodle Dandy?" You know, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Right, we can move on. Don't short our time. <laughs> so he retreats back to the farm for a while. He joined the USO. Uh, he went and performed Yankee Doodle Dandy for the troops over in Europe in World War Two. And in 1942, he was elected president of SAG. <laughs> president of SAG, like you do. Uh, I, thought, I thought that's just that of the United States. So I'd be like, <laughs> wait, Yankee what? Dandy, what? They put him in office. <laughs> what? They would never put an actor in office, you crazy son of a bitch. Sounds like a bad idea. Never happened. Never put a movie star. <laughs> yeah, that's in... reserved for reality TV stars. <laughs> <laughs> Only real politicians get president. <laughs> So uh, he was elected president of SAG in 1942, and he turned SAG's sights at the time on fighting the mafia's involvement in the film industry. That was like the big, his big fight when he was president of SAG. And uh, 1943, Cagney Did Studios. Did he stop acting during these years? He was no, just focused on being president. He's not. He didn't stop acting, but he was. He was forming his own production company. Oh, so that's right. Yeah. That's mainly what he was doing. In 1943, they made a film called Johnny Come Lately. Um, and they were, they Again. were trying to, yeah. Adult film parody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And he was trying to, they were trying to do something that was actually not patriotic war films at the time. Cause that was like, the market was saturated with patriotic war films <laughs> at the time. Uh, so, so much so Cagney Studios was the reason they are the ones who discovered World War II hero, Audie Murphy and brought him to Hollywood Drake, that's a whole episode we're going to do. Audie Murphy was a World War II veteran who won the Medal of Honor for, like, a very heroic act. He, he held off these Nazis for, like, a whole day. It's a big story. Um, and after he got out of World War II and won his medal, they brought him to Hollywood, and he became, like, this huge movie star. Whoa, okay. <laughs> and he was, playing, he was playing in films as himself doing the things that he won the medal for. Like, it was, it's one of the craziest Hollywood stories ever. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very cool, and he had very bad PTSD. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. To hell with Bradley Cooper. Give me Chris Kyle. <laughs> Dude, the actual Chris Kyle. Playing. Hey, he, yeah. was, he was murdered by the government. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so Cagney... I'll save that question for after the podcast. <laughs> So Cagney kind of bops around the 40s, getting Cagney productions off the ground. He stars in a few non-tough guy roles. He wanted to show his sensitivity. No more tough guy, you know. And uh, play adaptations and basically things, they just, I don't know. They they weren't really working anymore, you know. I mean, he's 
people just wanted to see him be like, you dirty rat, you know? Sure. Yeah, at this point, everybody... I guess, like, one of them was probably, like, this really dramatic play about being a farmer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Called the dirty farm rat. And then the Academy's like, fascinating, how could he imagine being a farmer? (laughs) (laughs) By Jove. Jack Warner's just throwing things as he's like, <laughs> he's like that fucker. I wonder if he like his whole life was just all about like ruining James Cagney. Um, At but, this point, Jack Warner is only speaking in gibberish. It's <laughs> like a chihuahua. Um, so, but it, things aren't really working out that well. So, in 1949, he does return to Warner Brothers again. Oh wow! To do again, White Heat. One of the best Cagney movies you gotta watch. Uh, he also pulled a deal to have White Heat. He Cagney Productions isn't really doing all that well out in the world, but they are making some stuff. You know, they're making things happen. They brought Audie Murphy out. Um, they're 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 getting they're enough clout just because he's James Cagney. So when he signed with Warner Brothers again to do White Heat, he brought his own production company in. He Cagney Productions mm. got basically absorbed into warner brothers oh so all these people now are studio people like that's kind of his deal was like i'm coming back i'll do white heat but i want cagney productions to be there to make the film Mm -hmm. and this led uh you know i'm sure a lot of them had careers at this you know right wait so but to this day like was this because i've never heard of cagney Productions still producing movies drake drake it's 2021. Everybody's dead. <laughs> yeah, I dead. know. But like Lucas Films is going to continue to be a film company long Cagney after George Productions Lucas Productions was dead. no Lucas Films. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make the billion. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was, I mean, when he went back to WB, that was kind of it. He went on to do films until 1961. Well, I mean, that was my question that you said, like, it got absorbed into Warner Brothers. Yeah. Did they just like... Everything just got like moved into Warner Brothers, or Basically. did Cagney Productions was that subsidiary of Warner Brothers for a while after that? It was a subsidiary, kind of it was, yeah, for a while. They were literally absorbed into it, and I'm okay. sure. So, I mean, Cagney Productions was there to stay. I'm sure it was not called Cagney Productions anymore. Okay, you know? so, okay, maybe. So, I mean, yeah. he probably had a trailer on the lot that okay. said Cagney Productions, <laughs> you know, something like that. But uh, yeah, and no, there are some films like White Heat does say Cagney Productions, okay. you know, and so they were they were there for sure, and yeah, this was this was kind of it though. I mean, he went on to do films until 1961, and he finally he retired with just like one hell of a career. He hung his tap shoes up. He was in his 60s, and uh, yeah, he retired to his uh, his farm. And Martha's Vineyard. So, and he never did movies again? Because like, did he never come out of retirement? He did. In the uh he did in the in the eighties he did some films. Um he came back out of retirement to do a few things as a very old man. But uh he also he had a lot of health problems. Mm-hmm. Um but when when he was retired though in his sixties they had a lot of fun. They would spend summer in Martha's Vineyard, they'd come to LA in the winter. He and Billy would throw these big parties at this famous Silverhorn restaurant. That was like, they were they were just kind of like retired. That's cool. That's fun. Partying yeah. movie stars. That's so fun. Know? Okay. And uh, Cagney in the early '80s, he was like, he had bad glaucoma, diabetes. He was having strokes. Oh shit. I'm sure the 
early 1900s was just not good to the body. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you manage to live to 60, you're going to pay for it. You know, that's for <laughs> you're gonna, sure. You're going to regret you're that You're going to fucking regret not dying. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, that's exactly what he did. He died in 1986. He died peacefully on his farm at 86 years old. He left zero zip zilch to his adopted children. <laughs> no money. Um, a big... Funeral mass was held at St. Francis Day, Roman Catholic Church in Manhattan, the the church where he was born. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. he was, remember? Told you they'd come back around. Told you he'd die one day. But uh, <laughs> the eulogy was delivered by Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time of Holy the United shit. States. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The eulogy's delivered by... By like the now president. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was a baller. Listen, his pallbearers were boxer Floyd Patterson, dancer Mikhail Bereshnikov, who uh, he this guy like always wanted to play Cagney on Broadway and stuff. Actor Ralph Bellamy, his homie and actor, director Milos Forman, Governor Mari M. Cuomo, and Mayor Edward L. Koch, one of the Cokes were also Cokes? yeah one of the Cokes were also in attendance they were all there as as Paul Bear Governor Mario Cuomo was one of his Paul Bear <laughs> Wait, why were the Cokes there the Coke brothers man you know they're everywhere they're everywhere <laughs> I didn't know they I didn't know they had any, any film ties <laughs> oh yeah 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 Monsanto anyway Cagney was in, in... <laughs> Now you're just throwing out companies. <laughs> Bill and Melinda Gates were there too. Uh, dude, they're getting a divorce. Yeah. I hope she's not broke after this. She, <laughs> she literally couldn't handle the cutthroatness of Bill Gates withholding vaccines for millions of people oh, around the world. Man. She's like, you're so... I thought you were a monster with computer software. Now you're just fucking evil. It's like all these uh, women, man, they can smell that. Like Jeff yeah. Bezos' girl, high-tailed, you know. She didn't, she didn't want Elon's to, on his, like, fourth wife. I mean, yeah. sure. She didn't want to be... She didn't want the tracker chip placed in her. <laughs> but... We'll get Cagney was uh he was put in a crypt in the Garden Mausoleum at Cemetery of the Gate of Heaven in Hawthorne, New York. And I wanted to go over I wanted to end it off with a few of his honors and legacy. Um, again, like I said, he won the Academy Award in nineteen forty three for Yankee Doodle Dandy. He was also nominated for his contributions to the film industry, Cagney was inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame in nineteen sixty with a motion picture star Located at 6504 Hollywood Boulevard. Drake and actually visited that star after yeah. the part two. We went and saw it, and we sent you a picture, Deb. Um, nice. Yeah, his star on the walk I of did. Fame. I remember that. In 1974, Cagney received the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award, and Charlton Heston, in announcing that Cagney was to be honored, called him one of the most significant figures of a generation when American film was dominant. Cagney, that most American of actors, somehow communicated eloquently to audiences all over the world and to actors as well. That was a pretty. That was a. That was a pretty good Charlton Heston, I must I, say. There you go. Yeah. I'll take your word for I it. I don't know who Charlton Heston Damn is. Damn it, Brian! Oh my God! Oh God. Charlton, this podcast now. Oh. 
At the very least, watch Planet of the Apes. At the very least. Oh, I've seen Planet of the Apes. The old ones? Yeah. Okay. Was, yeah, I like the old ones. Old. Actually, it holds Aston, up. baby. That was oh, all okay. You've seen oh, Charleston. okay. You know what? Now I know you're you dirty apes. That, you dirty yeah. apes. Yeah. Oh, my God. You dirty rat. You dirty apes. No wonder Heston loved James Cagney so much. He was just doing Cagney. Okay, yeah. Now, now I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Okay, cool. So Cagney, uh, oh sorry, no, um, it's not. It's not relevant. I'll say it's not for the podcast. Dub's got to go. Uh, so Cagney received the Kennedy Center Honors in 1980 and a Career Achievement Award from the U.S. National Board of Review in 1981. In 1984, Ronald Reagan awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1999, the U.S. Postal Service issued a 33 cent stamp honoring Cagney. Cagney was among the most favorite actors for director Stanley Kubrick. And actor Marlon Brando. Oh, wow. And was also considered by Orson Welles to be maybe the greatest actor to ever appear in front of a camera. Warner Brothers arranged private screenings of Cagney films for Winston Churchill. Oh, wow. Yeah. On May 19th, 2015, a new musical celebrating Cagney and dramatizing his relationship with Warner Brothers opened off-Broadway in New York City at the New York Theater. Cagney the Musical <laughs> then moved to the West Side Theater until May 28, 2017. They did a film history Cagney on stage, man. Wow. 2015. Who died first, him or Jack Warner? Oh, man. Like I said, Jack Warner's not dead yet, <laughs> so it had to be Cag. Jack Warner probably had him killed. <laughs> And that is it, everyone. That is James Cagney. That is the man. That the man, the myth, the legend. In my opinion, one of the most influential movie stars of all time. I think we did him some justice here on this three-parter. I think yeah. we did. I think we really it's got like into it's collectively like six hours of Cag. We <laughs> got six hours of Cag, baby. You can never have enough Cag. Dude. Now, I I think we should make a promissory commitment to our listeners that Waterworld will not be three no, parts. No, Waterworld is literally going to be one part. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. Seven There's... parts. <laughs> the Waterworld saga. It'll take us longer to do the podcast on Waterworld than it took to film the actual movie. <laughs> Cool. Oh man, yeah, we're gonna get back to you with Waterworld and how Kevin Costner is uh, maybe one of the most difficult and asshole actors who has ever lived. I'm so excited! Fun I can't fact: wait. We'll yeah. uh, we'll get into this in the episode, but he never wanted to be an actor. Wow, he did it. He did it for pure financial reasons. He graduated from Cal State Fullerton with a degree in like business and accounting what? and didn't, didn't get good work doing that. So he decided, Oh, acting super easy and you can make a lot of money. So I'm just going to do that. And that's how Kevin Costner well, became his life. That is apparent in Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, well, I watched Waterworld and I thought this man never wanted to act in the first place. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta give us a little background on him too. Like, what, there's yes. gotta be a build up to Waterworld. Oh, absolutely. You know? like, absolutely. We gotta know all the all the building blocks first. It won't be a three parter, but we're gonna get into it. Cool. We're gonna get into Just it. Make sure everybody watch it before you. Turn <laughs> yeah, on. yeah. I definitely gonna watch it. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Podcast. You'll love it. Jet skis. I'm so excited. Apocalyptic jet skis. These dudes, these stunt guys would like 
go underwater with their jet skis, and there's like, oh it's man, so boats, pyrotechnics, you know, yeah. it's Mad Max on the water. Oh, it's and you so talk exciting. about someone who was mean to women throughout the whole movie. <laughs> Kevin Costner's whole thing is just like, I might kill this woman at any moment, <laughs> and uh, everybody or and, rape her. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he's like the Grim Reaper. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Dennis Hopper is in a completely different movie than Kevin Costner. There are two movies. There's Kevin Costner and Dennis Hopper. We'll get into Dennis it. Dennis Hopper's in Speed 3, the final <laughs> frontier. <laughs> Dennis Hopper was having the time of his fucking life while Kevin Costner was trying to do, like, Citizen Kane on the water. Like, <laughs> Dennis Hopper's just all geeked out on, you know, nose clams. Yeah. <laughs> running around with a flamethrower on an oil tanker. It's, it's kind of great. It's gonna be great. You guys are gonna love it. I think the audience is gonna love it. I'm gonna love doing it. I can't. I'm gonna go right now and start doing the fucking the uh, write down the research that I already know on it because I know way too much about this stupid ass movie. And we will we will be back to you. Thank you so with, much, guys. Uh, yeah, can I you. can I plug stuff real quick? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go cool. ahead. You can find me on Instagram at Drake Cummings on Twitter at Drake underscore Cummings. Thank you for listening. Def. Yeah. Sailor De- Sailor underscore Dev on everything, and um, you can follow Abercadaver Films or My Fish, the My Fish app, if you guys are interested in fishing. <laughs> you can find Dev's dog in our podcast. <laughs> yeah, and that's Dev's rogue, dog. Everyone, James, where can they always find you? You can find me in the in the dumpster behind Ralph's <laughs> with a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Uh, film history, history of film. Soon, soon to be uh, charged monthly for rent for the box at $1,400 <laughs> a month. Because <laughs> it's Los Angeles. That's film history. The history of the film. The history of film. <laughs> that went well. Oh, that actually went extremely well. That was very good. Cut.